Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for February 3rd, 2019. Each Sunday during this season of Epiphany, we will hear a personal reflection from Russ Dean and a homily from Amy Jacks Dean. Today, Russ speaks about looking for the spirit of the message, and Amy's homily is called, Wait Now, Say What?, We're skipping around a little bit in my story. We're going back today to chapter 2. A new question, looking for the spirit of the message. One of my treasured possessions is the oldest gift that I ever remember having been given that I still own. It's this little blue Bible that was given to me as a young child by a family friend whose name was Mimi. And she wrote in the front of my Bible, This book will guide you through life if you will heed its teaching. For my life, I have tried to heed the teaching of the Bible. And I write in chapter 2, I remember the first real Bible I received. It was a birthday gift when I was in the first grade, so I guess I was five years old. It's a blue, leather-bound King James Version with my name embossed on the cover in silver lettering. I still treasure it. It is now worn by years of church-toting and reading and underlining. There are notes in the margins, little scraps of bulletins and devotional notes and quotes littering littering the pages. I treasure this gift which came with an almost magical aura of power. As a first grader, I had my own Bible. There was an emboldening power of possessing the Word of God. Now, no one said, when you learn to read and understand, Russ, maybe you will get a copy of the Bible. No, it was just implied that as a first grader, I had all the tools I needed to read and fully understand this book, and many people believe that. I do not. The Bible is wonderful and terrible. It is comforting and frightening. It has the power to change hearts and to threaten lives and nations. You know, we demand driver training and gun safety, and we require that our teachers have diplomas and certificates, but for the Bible, a tool that is at least as powerful as a gun, you know, they say the pen is mightier than the sword, and has as much potential of unlocking the future of children of all ages, we just say, well, here it is, have at it. If you're at least as smart as a first grader, you can read the Bible. If we value the Bible as we claim, I think we need to think again about that. My mother says I asked a zillion questions when I was a child, and then I was never satisfied with her answers. She'd give me an answer, I'd say, well, why? Well, why? Well, why that? And finally, she'd say, because. (laughs) Because is not an answer until you become a parent. And then it's the best answer because I asked a zillion questions when I was a child 
And I was never satisfied with the answer unless the answer was, well, the Bible says. And you know, somehow I was just satisfied. No matter what the question was, if my mother or my father could say, well, Russ, the Bible says, well, okay. The Bible says it, that settles it, right? I'm good. I'm satisfied. You know, the church was the center of my life. I've told you this, and I loved it. I loved the way I was raised. The church was the center of my life, and the Bible was the center of church. I mean, basically, everything we did was geared around the Bible. Sunday school was learning the Bible. Church training on Sunday night was learning the Bible. Youth group was about learning the Bible. Even choir was about learning the Bible. We sang songs about the Bible, you know. Sermons were about the Bible. Everything was about learning the Bible. Um, it was the Word of God. And that really meant for me as a child, what I really understood was this was, it was the words of God. It was almost a kind of magical aura around this book that we had the words of God. There was like no human involvement in the Bible in my understanding. You know, it was just kind of this magical book that we had come to possess, and it was the words of God. And if we could read it right and understand it right, then we had all the answers. We knew God, and we knew Jesus, and we knew the Holy Spirit. And you know, if you could read it right and interpret it right, um, the Bible had an answer. It had the answer for any question you would come to in your life. All you had to do is just read the Bible. You're a first grader. You got all the tools you need. Just read the Bible. I think we need to think about that. Let me read to you again. I was a sophomore in college before I asked my first critical religious question. Looking at the story of Moses and the Pharaoh, we read in class, and God hardened the Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the people go. Before this disappointing revelation, the Bible had always made sense to me, or it had made sense after some rather simple explanation. You know, Russ, this was just part of God's plan, or God needed to prove God's power over the Egyptian ruler, or we don't know why, but you know, it's what the Bible says, so we can't question it. And I would go, oh, okay. You know, I don't know what had changed in my head. Maybe it was that philosophy class I told you about a couple of weeks ago. But suddenly the words just needed to be questioned in a way that I had never experienced. Wait, if God hardened the Pharaoh's heart, wouldn't that sort of make God responsible for the Pharaoh not letting the people go? And if the Pharaoh wasn't ready to let the people go, so God had to convince the Pharaoh by sending plagues and pestilence and pain and plenty of it, well, wasn't God, in a way, responsible for that, too? And why would God ever do a thing like that? What explanation could possibly suffice? God's will? Well, how could pain, such unnecessary, fatal pain, be at all a part of God's will? What bigger picture could possibly justify such wrenching human suffering it wasn't like I lay awake at night dreaming up skeptical, condemning questions. So if this question had come to me, honestly, shouldn't I really ask it? You know, love God with all your mind and all that stuff. 
And I knew this text was in the Bible, literally. But how and why? Why? Dr. John Shelley, perhaps seeing the first little crack open in the doorway that introduced my mind to a new way of reading the Bible, responded carefully, caringly, as all good professors do. And Dr. Shelley said to me, I will never forget standing at his desk after class that day, sometimes, Russ, you have to look for the spirit of the Bible's message, not just at the literal words. Yesterday morning, Amy and I spent three hours at John Shelley's house. He and his wife, Anne, entertained us for breakfast, and we talked for three hours about this book and his journey and our journey and all the common connections we have over the years. I thought about that, th those words. He responded carefully, caringly, as all good professors do. After 35 years, I'm still in touch with my religion professors uh, from seminary and from uh, college, and I can still call them up and say, John, can I come talk to you? I'm grateful for good professors. When he said those words, you have to look for the spirit of the message, not just the literal words. I thought literal words and spirit of the text. Maybe I thought literal words versus the spirit of the text. Those words jumped out at me. I had never heard anything like that before. Maybe it had been said, but I had never heard it before. Wow. Maybe there's a new way to read the Bible. I am not sure there is anything our culture needs more than to learn another way to read the Bible. For the people who don't just shelve their Bibles and head to Starbucks on Sunday, bumper sticker theology is enough for a lot of the other people. You know, some people just say, I've had enough with this, and it's old, and it's antiquated, and they just put it up, and they're done with it. For other people, a simplistic answer is enough. Nothing would change the church more than learning to read the Bible anew. Nothing would better mediate the culture war that is raging in this country than a good course in biblical literacy. I can't tell you how many times somebody comes to Amy or me, this is a fairly regular occurrence, and they say, where does it say in the Bible, a penny saved is a penny earned? Where does it say in the Bible, you're the wind beneath my wings? <laughs> you wouldn't believe what we hear the Bible said. It's amazing, in our culture, even for people who don't really care about the Bible, the Bible says is power. And if the Bible says it, then we can believe it. And if it doesn't say it, then we don't have to worry about it. You know, there's something powerful about that literal kind of understanding of the Bible. And I don't think there's anything that would change our culture more than learning to read the Bible in a better way than just literally. Stanley Hauerwas, the inimical Duke ethicist, makes the point a slightly different and typically Hauerwasian way. He says this, most North American Christians assume that they have a right, if not an obligation, to read the Bible. I challenge that assumption. No task is more important for the church than to take the Bible out of the hands of individual Christians in North America. Let us rather tell our children and their parents that they are possessed by habits far too corrupt 
for them to be encouraged to read the Bible on their own. Sounds like Hauerwas. And what he's saying is a first grade understanding, if I can just pick it up and read it, and it says blah, 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 that's not enough. And Dr. Shelley challenged me with that in my sophomore year in college, and I have never forgotten that lesson. You can read the literal text, and that's almost never what it's about. It's deeper than that. And if you want to know, you've got to read harder. You've got to study more. You've got to think more carefully. Are our children really prepared to read the Bible? And are you? And when you do, what are you looking for? Just the simple rules, do this and don't do this. I'm in and you're out. Here's right, here's wrong. Is that how you read the Bible? There's something much, much more important about the Bible than that. I want to give you two words and I'll end with this. The words start with an L. You know, good preachers use alliteration, okay? It's not the word loser. Two words, literal. The Bible is not literal. I'd love to disabuse you of the notion that all you need to do is find what the Bible literally says on whichever side of an issue you take. If the Bible says it, I'm okay. The Bible is not literal. The writers of the Bible were writers just like writers today, and they always had deep and symbolic and spiritual things in mind when they wrote, do not understand the Bible as just literal. The Bible is a literary treasure. We've got to learn to read that. We've got to learn to understand allegory and metaphor and myth and poem and poetry. We've got to understand to read the Bible more deeply than just a literal C.H. Dodd, the great uh, British theologian of the last century, said there's no such thing as an intelligent, literal reading of the Bible. Every reading is an interpretation. Thou shalt not kill. What does that mean? No self-defense, no war, no capital punishment, no murder. There's no such thing as a plain, literal reading of the Bible. So disabuse yourself of the notion that all you got to do is read the Bible. It is a literary treasure. Do not give it up, please. But learn to read again. And look for the spirit, not just the word. Who'll be a witness for my Lord? 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 My favorite one is, where does it say God helps those who help themselves? I don't know. It's not the Bible. Had a recent email conversation with someone, and, and I was saying, I guess I just find myself in every situation looking for the view of the minority, looking for the view of the oppressed looking through everything with the lens of how do the poor see this? How do the disadvantaged see this? How, that's how I approach every single thing I see on news. Everything, that's how I approach it. And the person responded, I'm so curious, why do you do that? And I said, um, the Bible? That's why I do that. That's the first thing I'm gonna say. None of this is written down, I got a whole thing. The second thing I want to say is, Russ, this is interesting to not write everything out. So Russ told you about his first Bible. My first Bible was burgundy with, um, I believe it's gold 
Amy Adair Jacks, from my grandmother when I was probably first grade. And uh, unlike Russ's that's covered in words, at my house, you couldn't sing at the table. His family sings at the table all the time. And you would never, ever make a mark of any kind in the Word of God. So when I went to seminary and you got a study Bible that they wanted you to write in, it just like kills me to mark up the Bible because you didn't touch the Word of God. You just read it. The third thing I want to say is we don't even, re we don't just rewrite children's songs that we don't agree with anymore. <laughs> Clearly, we rewrite um, ancient rituals of the church that after scripture is read in liturgical churches, you will hear, this is the word of the Lord. And the people say, yeah, some of you really miss that. And sometimes I miss it too because I like the ritual of it. But when we started listening, this is the word of the Lord. The implication is it's the only one. It is one word of the Lord, but it is not the only word of the Lord. So we rewrote ancient church ritual and liturgical tradition to say, you have heard the ancient story. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. I'm sorry for the people that don't love that, but I don't see us bringing it back. Okay, now for the sermon. He was the best until he was the worst. He was amazing until he was infuriating, hanging on his every word until he said something they didn't like, and then they tried to throw him off the cliff. And so was the fickleness of the people who listened to Jesus. And I'm not sure we've changed very much. In Jesus' initial proclamation of good news, he makes it clear he will not be a prophet who serves the special interests of his hometown. But rather, he is a messenger of good news for the whole world, especially the vulnerable, all of them, in the crowd have the same reaction. At first, it's like, oh, wow, that's an awesome message. And it quickly turns to anger when they realize that they aren't the sole recipients of this good news. They heard Jesus proclaim good news, and they wanted proof for signs that Jesus was the prophet that he claimed to be. And then they hear with anger his declaration that his ministry is directed to everyone. So they respond with, angry and, with anger, and as a group, they rise up and they try to kill him. Just as he's getting started. Jesus' ministry begins with the proclamation of good news. His proclamation is ultimately rejected. The crowd attempts to kill him. And in many ways, this is just a foreshadowing of everything that is to come in his ministry that lies ahead. Jesus' proclamation of a kingdom in which the poor will inherit the kingdom of heaven, where the hungry will be filled, and the rich and the full, they will be pulled down ultimately. And that is the message that will lead him to the cross. We still want the message of the gospel to be easy, pretty, simple, literal, and most of all, doable. 
We still want to be the center of attention found in Scripture. We want to be the receivers of grace. We want to be the inner circle of those that get it. I mean, really get it. But if you watch and listen to the whole of Jesus' ministry, you see a lot of half-listening going on, a lot of nodding and affirming as he's talking, until they listen a little bit deeper, and then you hear them going, wait now, say what? He's constantly throwing them for a loop because he does not always do and say the things that they expect him to do and say. He is constantly catching them off guard. Some examples. Storm blows across the water. You find Jesus sound asleep. When he sees their panic, he finds a way to calm their fears. He had the power to calm fear. That is so much more miraculous than calming a storm. Think about the levels of fear that we all carry. Is there someone in your life that has the power to calm your fear? Wait now. Say what? That story wasn't about some water becoming still? No, not at all. Send them all home because we don't have enough food to feed them. And you'll find the miracle of a boy willing to share, and Jesus takes that and multiplies it. I am 100% convinced that the crowd saw the generosity of the boy, and out of guilt, they dug into their backpacks and pulled out what they had been hoarding for the drive home. And when everybody did that, there were leftovers. Wait now, say what? You mean that story wasn't about fish and bread? Get these rowdy children out of here, the disciples said. Children should be seen and not heard. And then Jesus says, let the little children come to me for such as these belong the kingdom. Wait now, say what? I hope my knees last as long as I'm a pastor. Because that one verse about bring the children to me because the kingdom of God belongs to these is why I squat to talk to children and serve them communion. Women... Well, it says it as plain as day. Keep silent. I mean, what do you do with that? You either be quiet if you're me, or you realize how many times did Jesus engage women? Caught in adultery? Doesn't matter. Tainted with blood, making them unclean, doesn't matter. Gathering some water at the well, it didn't matter to Jesus. He was willing to push through cultural barriers to always, always, always offer welcome no matter what. And the people that get the most special attention, I am not making this up, was the foreigner, the outcast, the immigrant. Now, hear with that what you want to hear. Wait, now say what? 
and leave it to a woman to set him straight a few times. I do love that part. That Syrophoenician woman, and you're saying who? Read about her sometime. She made Jesus stop and think, and when she did, he totally changed his tune. He had forgotten, apparently, what he had said in that first sermon, that it wasn't all just about you in my hometown. It wasn't just about my people. This is a message for everyone. And that Syrophoenician woman reminded him that the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus, is for everyone. And he changed. Wait now. Say what? And yet Jesus remains an enigma and sometimes a paradox. He's the meek, mild, and gentle, and always bringing peace. Except when he totally loses his cool and turns over the tables in the temple because of extortion. Say what? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Except when one woman wants to anoint him with the most expensive perfume and he tells the people, let her be extravagant with me. That is so not a Jesus move. How many people could she have fed if she had sold and given that perfume, had sold the perfume and given it away? And yet he didn't consider it a waste to allow her to lavishly bless him with the sweet smell of it, pouring it over his feet, and she lets her hair down and wipes his feet with it, which is very sensual. Wait now, say what? You do realize I could do this all day, don't you? <laughs> all day long. I could tell you stories from the Bible, both the Hebrew text and the New Testament, and if we really understood it, we would see that there is a deeper meaning to every single story. There is some nugget of truth in every story beyond the literal words that might help us live fully into who we are created to be. Because the Bible is full of flawed characters that God is constantly sifting through the pieces of their lives to find the sacred spark, the kernel of goodness, the sliver of holy that dwells within all of us and sometimes the people of God get it right. And sometimes they fail miserably. That is our story. The harder part is when you read the story of the people of God, sometimes God's love is so obvious. And sometimes God repents for God's own hardness of heart. Wow, God repents. The Bible is the story of the people of God, and we are still writing the scriptures with every encounter we have, every conversation, every action, every good deed, every offering of generosity, every casserole, every card, every hug, Every time I'm sorry is uttered and every time I forgive you, spoken. We are continuing to write the story of the people of God. And conversely, every harsh word, every time forgiveness is withheld, every time we ignore the plight of the poor, 
every time we fail to acknowledge injustice, every time we turn a blind eye to what we could do to make a difference. Wait now, say what? We're writing scripture? Yeah, we are still writing scripture. This is a special book about the love of God. And so is your story. Your life is a special book about the love of God. May your story be a literary masterpiece for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who will be a witness for my Lord? 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 May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.